Hey guys, this is Rafael Garcia, and I'm back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Tonight, Schwan and I have a very special guest. You know, we're going to do our thing, you know, always talking about the fights and some of the action that's going on, but we've got a very special guest in T.P. Grant that's here with us tonight to talk about MMA and grappling as well. So first and foremost, we want to say thank you to him for taking some time out, and appreciate you joining us, sir. It's no problem. Happy to be here. I'm big fans of both of you guys on Twitter and your writing and all that stuff. So it's fun to be here. Hey, thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it because we need it. We need we need that outside uh, perspective. Me and Raphael bounce off each other pretty well, but you know, it's always good to get a little bit of an outside perspective, maybe to just clear some of the stuff that maybe we miss or maybe just counter some points we're making. You know, we're all about getting better and learning. So. Anything we can do to help that, and you would be, you would be a great deal in helping us educate the fans and ourselves more about the finer points of the grappling and then mixed martial arts. So yeah, let's go ahead and jump right on into that, man. Um, I want to first and foremost start off with looking back at UFC Fight Night, or excuse me, UFC on Fox 24, because not only did we get some great fights, uh, this, I think this card overall was a lot better than what we expected just because it was it was a good showcase from top to bottom especially the main card but we saw some fights with some excellent grappling there of course we were going to start with demetrius johnson getting his 10th um flyweight title defense tying anderson silva for the record he's one away from becoming the the usc champion with the most consecutive title defenses so i think that's going to be um a feather in his cap but not only did he do that but he did that by submitting Wilson Hayes, a man with years upon years of not only MMA experience, but competitive grappling experience. He's a high-level black belt. When I say high-level, I don't even think people understand how good this guy's um, jiu-jitsu really is. But what we saw was Demetrius Johnson dominate him in every fashion of the fight and even submit him in the third round, near the end of the third round. So I want to start there. Like, Just how, how big of a moment was that, TP? What did you see? Uh, well, I saw, number one, Demetrius Johnson, just in almost everything he does, is picture perfect, like textbook perfect. Um, striking, takedown defense, ground grappling. He is, without a doubt to me, the most overall skilled fighter in the game right now. Uh, really, really fun to watch. And that finishing sequence on Wilson Hayes was a thing of abject beauty. Uh, he, If I remember correctly, he dropped him with a knee. Uh, to like the solar plexus and then followed up on the ground. And so you're dealing right away. You're dealing with a guy in Wilson Hayes, who's extremely skilled on the ground, but has been severely hurt with a body shot uh, on the ground. It's the end of a round. He's likely already tired before getting the wind knocked out of him. Uh, and he ends up kind of playing this. Uh, he ends up kind of playing like a half guard sort of situation. And, uh, Demetrius Johnson kind of really put some weight down on him and fought his way to what a lot of uh, a lot of jiu-jitsu guys call quarter guard, where you're, you're mounted, but you're kind of clinging to the guy's foot. And that position is mostly a – the reason people cling to that foot is, A, it gives you a, a small modicum of control over them. You can, like, start to work back to a deep half guard or a more traditional half guard if you keep control of that foot. Uh, and Wilson Hayes is a, a, a well-known uh, fan of the deep half guard. But also in, in sport jiu-jitsu, there's a point component to it that you are stopping the guy from getting his passing points and from his mount points. Um, 
Unfortunately, when there are strikes involved, the guy can just beat the shit out of you when you're there. Um, and I've been told by some pretty high-level black belts, even in a competition setting, a pure grappling competition setting, is that when someone has you in quarter guard, one of the best things you can do is just treat them like you're in mount and start working your choke offenses. And when they have to defend that, it'll open up the chance to go to mount. And that's Demetrius Johnson basically opened up mount by slamming his elbows into Wilson Hayes' face. Hayes turned over to stop uh, to try to defend the strikes, and Johnson entered into like a perfect armbar. It was it was really really nice technical fundamental uh, top game from Johnson. Yeah, hey, so this was, go ahead. When watching the fight in the post fight, um, in the post fight breakdown, a lot of the they focus a lot on the fact that Mighty Mouse was kind of touching them up on the feet and out positioning them, and that's what kind of took the gas out of out of Wilson and kind of broke him down and set him up for the grappling. My question is, was it a matter of Demetrius playing a really smart game and beating him up on the feet? And then taking him down, like if he would have came out and tried to grapple with him right off the bat, do you believe that if Demetrius Johnson could have went, you know, position for position, scramble for scramble, submission for submission with with Wilson, or was it a, was it really a matter of him actually having to do that damage earlier on the feed? Because I don't know, as good as Johnson is, I don't know that he could have kind of come right out and challenged him, challenged him on his strongest front, and still won the fight. He seemed to believe that after the fight. He said. You know, once I felt comfortable, you know, I realized that I could wrestle and grapple too. I took him to the ground and I outworked him, but I, I don't know that that was really feasible had he just come right out and met him there. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like MMA, MMA uh, incentivizes what I kind of mentally think is sprint grappling, where the rounds are five minutes and you're starting on the feet. There's somewhat limited ground time there's no like really set amount of time on the ground that you have to do something in but if you're not being active they'll stand you back up and the point structure is like highly incentivizes the guy on the bottom to get up and to escape the bottom position so when you're playing top game unless you're like just a really prestigious grinder and you know you can score takedown after takedown and then hold a dude down you're really picking your spots on the ground i think if demetrius johnson had come out and like looked to shoot takedowns right away he would have been in uh way more high-paced scrambles he would have been fighting to pass hayes's guard or hayes would have been working to stand back up potentially um, and we would have gotten really different grappling exchanges, and it likely would have taken several of those to get anywhere for Demetrius Johnson because it's just kind of the nature of MMA grappling that, like, even when there's a skill disparity on the ground, you don't usually see a guy get insta-tapped, like, in the first, like, minute of a fight. Like, there's there, there are kind of things you have to go through. So when we got to that third round and Johnson hit the ground with him, Johnson kind of felt that this was an opportunity and really went for it on the ground versus like other points in other fights where guys like might, they might mess around on the ground a little bit. They might hold the guy down for the rest of the round, but they don't really feel like this is the opportunity where they're going to spend a bunch of energy going for something. And then that way, I think MMA groundwork is, in that idea, more like Sambo or Judo, where you're really picking your spot to be really offensive versus like a jiu-jitsu tournament where like 
the whole thing is ground grappling. So you're constantly working to pass guard or something like that because there's really no reset. There's no like, oh, I might hit a takedown past the guy's guard next time, and then I'll really be able to do work. Yeah, that, that's been my experience. I, I actually trained, uh, legitimately trained Samba for a while, and then uh, a lot uh, after I did that for a while, kind of gets you in a different mindset where you work for the control, you know, because like you said, you can get that takedown repeatedly because if you're not making any forward progress, then they're just going to reset you, and you have that option of controlling them and defending a takedown and putting them down or taking them down yourself. Um, the thing that really stands out to me is a lot of, in a lot of cases, we've seen big name fighters from big name camps who've been facing a guy or a girl who's way superior to them on the ground. And it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like they're able to formulate a strategy to counteract, to counteract what that person does on the ground, either being able to stay on the feet long enough to create, to do damage. So, so they have a chance on the ground or being able to defend themselves once put there. Uh, example would be like Damian Maya versus Carlos Condit or Misha Tate versus Holly Holm. It's like once those things hit the ground, even though they were in disadvantageous positions, the fact is they really had nothing for that person. I know DJ was kind of, you know, he kind of touched up Wilson on the feet and Wilson was getting tired. But what do you think it is about Matt Hume where he has him down so precisely and so measured in his game that he's able to take advantage of the openings because we've repeatedly seen lesser grapplers not be able to submit, much less maintain position against superior grapplers, even when they have them hurt. Uh, I think the first thing that we need to recognize is that even though like Demetrius Johnson doesn't really have uh, accolades in competitive grappling is that he's a really high level grappler that, I mean, just, just having him watched on the ground, work on the ground for so many years, um, the, the way he moves, the way he controls people, the way he transitions for attacks. I mean, I, I think the number one answer here is that Demetrius Johnson is on a level, in an MMA context, is on a level with some of the better ground grapplers out there. Um, I don't want to get into like a, like a, like a, you know, is he better than Damian Maya discussion or where does he fit in like the top 10 grapplers? But he's, he's definitely like a, in that elite tier, one of the elite tiers for ground fighters in MMA, especially at least from a top position in terms of the way he moves, passes and attacks. So I think that first of all, uh, all, all the like accolades to Wilson Hayes, Wilson Hayes was not that much better of a grappler than Demetrius Johnson going into this fight. Um, and I think for him to have won on the ground, he would have needed really prolonged, really favorable grappling exchanges to like kind of really dive into Demetrius Johnson's game and like really find out, try to find a hole in it and exploit it. Yeah, I, before the fight, a lot of times after the Elliott Johnson fight, I think a lot of people felt that maybe Demetrius had some holes in his game that could be exploited, especially by a more refined and traditional grappler. My logic was part of, part of what gave him that success against Demetrius was the fact that he was unorthodox, that he could keep him at a high pace, that he was constantly scrambling and fighting for position and fight, fighting for escape. Whereas I thought that somebody with a more fundamental and structural type of ground attack would be a little bit easier for Demetrius to figure out because he kind of takes away things and slowly figures you out when you're kind of doing whatever and giving up position and reversing and flying all over the place, it's harder to figure that out. It's harder to find the pattern. But against a guy who kind of goes through the 
the more traditional steps, it's a little bit easier to find that pattern. It's a little bit easier to figure out, figure out what to take away from. It. Yeah, and and I mean, like, and we can talk about Tim Elliott because he had an awesome fight on oh, the same card. That. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think the way Tim Elliott's game matches up with people is he he kind of creates those sort of grappling matches on the mat. And it's both good for him and it's bad for him at times. And and that that's kind of where I'll leave it because I think the Smolka fight was a really solid example of of the strengths and the downsides of Elliot's grappling style. So actually, let's talk about that then because it's funny that you brought up Tim Elliott because I think the funniest thing about him is that I think it's his Instagram handle is Awkward MMA. And that's probably the best way to explain it because it looks he looks awkward on his feet he looks awkward when he's on the ground but it works he gets it to work for him and so talk about that a little bit when you talk about his how he could how he performed against smoker earlier in the night i think that that's kind of i think that's that's the trouble that elliot gives people especially when you mix in his range at this weight class he's, he's a big flyweight fighter so talk about that and how well he uses that to capitalize when he gets um into his positions well, so Elliot's a really interesting guy because um, wrestling-wise, he's got fantastic takedowns. Um, really good at good at getting in and finishing. I mean, like he got Demetrius Johnson to the ground a few times, um, and Louis Smoka like basically doesn't care if you take him down. So, like in in that fight, he looked like the world's greatest wrestler because Smoka was not defending takedowns really at all. But once he's on the mat, Tim Elliott like really seems and I, I i this is just from watching him i haven't grappled with him but it really seems like he doesn't play a high pressure game in the sense of he's like you know talking about like elite level jujitsu guys when like i'm trying to remember who said it but the, someone like grappled with hodger gracie and got mounted by him and said that like the only thing that moved when hodger mounted me was my eyes um like Tim Elliott doesn't seem like that guy, kind of guy. Elliott is, plays a way more wide open game. He leaves a lot of, there's a lot of like, I, I don't know if they're intentional holes in his top game, but he is like 100% a transitional grappler. He wants his, uh, his opponent moving on the ground so he can try to find the openings and like not always dive for submissions, but like try to attack submissions through the movement. And that's a little bit different of a game to play against. You kind of got to learn what a guy likes to do in those moments. So you'll get scary moments with guys like that where they'll slap on a Darce choke and you'll have to fight your way out of it. But then you can kind of file away like the transition he used to catch it so that you're ready for it next time. And, and in his fight with Luis Smoka, Smoka was 100% down to play a transition-y grappling sort of, uh, a transition grappling sort of match. And so we had like this absolutely three rounds of insanity on the map. Hey, look, TP, I have a question because, or actually it's more of a comment, but, um, and I'm not comparing myself to Tim Elliott, but the impression I, like, when it comes to grappling, I've never really done the fundamental, you know, like I went through this step and this step and learned. It's kind of been like, I, I learned some stuff and I roll a lot. I spend a lot of time on the mat just rolling, 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 rolling when I when I get a chance to grapple. So it's just a lot of comfort and familiarity with doing with doing it with a lot of styles and a lot of different types of people. Mm -hmm. And when I when I see Tim Elliott, fight, even when I see him fight on the feet, because even with my even when I train stand up, it's been a similar thing. I've learned stuff, but a lot of what I've learned and how it works is based on just sparring with a lot of people. When I see him fight, I get the impression he's a guy who 
spends a lot of time rolling, spends a lot of time sparring, whether it's hard, light, or medium. And he's just developed a certain amount of comfort and familiarity with bad positions. And a lot of his game is loose because it's learned through, it's learned through the process. Like there's not a lot of individual prior to now, prior to his camp change, there wasn't a lot of individual, let's break this situational, like, excuse me, individual situational grappling. Like it's all one big series instead of, hey, let's stop it. Instead of stopping at one or two, he goes one through 10 or, you know what I mean? There's not yeah. consistent work in particular positions or particular stances or particular places in the cage. Yeah, he, he's very much um, happy to he, – he pretty much exists purely in the scramble and then – I think actually that that's – I was getting ready to say that like he kind of – when he's in the cage, he kind of fights like he's rolling almost. Like there's a certain level of bravery that goes into that where you're just like, I'm just going for it. And a lot of people lose that in competition. You get to competition, you get to your favorite position, and you just lock it down, and you look for, like, your one or two things. And a lot of guys will build a game as they compete more. And Elliot seems really wide open. He's cool going for whatever. And that might be a function of him just being in the gym, like, rolling all the time. Uh, but, like, not having really a refined game outside of – being okay, like just creating scrambles and going for stuff. Um, he clearly seems to favor the Dars, but um, like he doesn't really have those meticulous setups that you see from higher level guys. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of classify him as one of those guys, even on the feet, because he's got a kind of a funkier style on the feet. I, I classify him as one of those guys who the more looks you get at him, the easier he is to counteract or attack or defend he just it's just his rhythm it's his pacing uh the setups or lack thereof whether it's on the feet or on the ground it's really hard to get put your finger on because he's coming from a position that most people aren't coming from and he knows he has enough experience where you're just not gonna catch him in like just the basic fundamental stuff until you get uh, maybe past a certain point or you get to a certain point in a fight with him yeah i there, there are um and I wouldn't call I wouldn't qualify Elliot's game completely this way, but there there are guys that you grapple with that um, predicate a lot of their game on on things that I would kind of call gimmicks, and I, I don't mean that in like a really derogatory way because I have some gimmicks in my game. I feel like everyone should, but they're like submissions that only work the first or second time someone sees them, uh, and then and then once you've shown them it it's really easy for them to prevent. And they, they, again, they file it away and maybe down the road, you surprise them with it again, like three, four months later, but like you're not catching it again later that role. And you're not catching it again next week because they're on the lookout for it. So like, I, I would say it's kind of fair that Elliot has some things that are like, there are things like I, I very much categorize like submissions from the bottom of side control can absolutely work but you're not going to make a consistent game around that. Not saying Elliot does that, but Elliot's, um, Elliot's ground game does seem to be kind of like, it, it's like a um, kind of uh, just by the seat of his pants. And as a result, he's not getting consistent finishes on the mat. When, like, when you look at his transitions, the guy can grapple. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that if, as he gets more attentive, like more focused coaching, um, if his if his ground game becomes a little more uh, funneled into his strengths, 
Yeah. So it's, you said some interesting things there. I'm kind of going to use that to segue into um, another fight from Saturday because you mentioned some, again, in air quotes, some gimmicks to some individuals' games that people prepare for when they see. That is a fun. That is a fantastic way I want to describe that head and arm throw that Michelle Waterson used against Rose on Saturday. Yes, it worked fantastic against Paige Vanzant. The minute I saw her go for it against Rose, you knew that was going to put her in a bad spot. Because look at like seconds after that, Rose had her hooks in, working for a, a for a finish. So you you can tell that she was not only has she, was she probably drilling for that position, but she's such a fine tuned grappler that it's almost almost comes natural. Yeah, and and um, I'd actually categorize Rose for a while was like very much Tim Elliott like in that she just went for stuff and she has since like she was she i think um i i think in talking about her striking game i think um one of my one of my friends uh connor connor rebush like i think categorized her i've known him for years yeah yeah he categorized her as like like all the all the all the like the fancy stuff and none of the fundamentals and then she slowly started adding fundamentals and i think her her ground game could be kind of um, categorized in the same way where like she was like crazy rolling Kimura control attacks and stuff like that and flying arm bars but now like we're seeing really solid fundamental like back take rear naked choke finishes from her um, yeah the Michelle Waters the head and arm throw in no gi is a dicey thing um, and it, even when you're doing it in gi like if you're not doing judo or sambo where something ends pretty quickly after you get a big throw, um, you better have a wicked quesa. Like you, you, you like you have to have a killer quesa if you're going to start um, head and arm throwing people because if you don't have that really strong pinning position, they're either going to take your back or you're going to scramble for your life to avoid getting your back taken, and uh, and. Michelle Watterson didn't have that, didn't have that position down. And it's a weird thing in MMA, women's MMA in particular, where the head and arm throw is just a really, really popular throw. Um, and I don't really know why it is. And it, it, it can work, but you need to really build your game around making it work. And, and as soon as you, she hit the mat both times, after hitting that throw, you could tell that Michelle Watterson likes the throw, but doesn't really have a plan for after the throw. You know, uh, with it's the a head and arm throw, I've always thought a lot of the reason it works well in women's MMA, and and because a lot of the a lot of the women fighters I've seen are very have a lot of have some tenure in wrestling or grappling. They don't have a lot of tenure in their striking. Like their striking isn't really super refined to me, or even like maybe strategically refined. So a lot of them go into those chain of punches or huge rushes of offense, which which kind of walks them right into the head and arm throw. Like they, like Rose comes in usually behind a jab. She breaks her footwork up between quarter steps, half steps, and full steps. But most girls don't do that. They don't really have a jab. They don't really feint their way in. They kind of might make one feint and then come barreling in with a series of combinations where they try to rush you, rush you into a clinch instead of using their footwork to cut an angle to get past your strikes to get into the clinch. So essentially a lot of girls just serve themselves right up for it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair, but it, it, it's just one of those things that if you're gonna, it, it is, 
I don't see it used heavily in jujitsu, um, mostly because jujitsu guys like it, 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 talking about like Casey Katami and like the head and arm pin. Most jujitsu guys avoid that position because they don't put the time in to get good at it and view it as just a great way to give up your back. Um, and if you don't put into time into it, it, that's essentially what it is. If you get good at it, you can you know Josh Barnett style crush the life out of people. But if you're not good at it, you're going. You're more likely to end up like Michelle Waterson did. Um, it, it, it's just an, it's an interesting little quirk that um, the position comes up a lot. They go for the throw a lot. They're decent at finishing the throw, but then it's the what happens after the throw. You get your back taken. Another another point I, I was trying to I harped on last week was that. It was two points. One, Michelle Waterson isn't really a legitimate straw weight. She's kind of small for the weight class, for one. And two, she'd already had, she'd already, I'd, I'd already seen her have problems with people with solid top control games in Invicta, even when she fought Angela Magana in the UFC. Like she hadn't faced a person who was kind of capable of at least matching her on the feet or matching her on the ground. So she had, she hadn't, she didn't really had, like, she basically, when she pushed against somebody, they kind of capitulated against someone like Rose Namajunas. She has the skills and athleticism that when you push her, she's going to push back. I didn't know that if I didn't know that Watterson was mentally ready enough for someone of um, Namajunas' caliber, unless Namajunas had a total meltdown. I really didn't see how she would win. She's much bigger. The power difference between them was noticeable. Michelle was hitting her with some pretty solid kicks. Couldn't keep her off her. Every time Namajunas touched her, it was like a shock to her system. You saw her reacting very badly to getting hit by Namajunas. And um, I just thought that was—I thought that was one, a big factor, not so much a technical one, but a mental and strategical one. If you never face a certain caliber, how do you react against that caliber, especially when they're much as athletic as you, if not more, or as big and strong as you, if not more so? I mean, those things play a factor in grappling or sta or striking outside of just pure technique. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough situation. I mean, Michelle Watterson. Um, She's also she's been in the game for a little bit. I mean, if we're talking about it, she's she's been fighting for ten years at this point. She's thirty-one years old, um, going against a bigger, much younger, pretty much. I mean, like at this point, Rose Namajunas. I think we can all agree is like she's she's going to be an absolute killer in this division. Um, she's already becoming one. Uh, the only people she's really struggled with have been more experienced, much more polished fighters who, um, uh, if not super experienced in MMA, come from a, have a deep experience in another combat sport, whereas MMA is basically Rose Namajunas' first combat sport. She's still in the process of kind of learning it. In, in two or three years, I don't know who, I, I like, I, Rose Namajunas is going to be a handful for pretty much anyone except Yoana. Uh, I, I actually, I, I actually, when it, when I first thought she was gonna, when she fought Carolina, I, I thought she would beat Carolina. First of all, I really think she has a really good shot at beating either uh, Joanna or um, she's slipping my mind right now. Her the uh, other girl who's fighting her for the title this in a, mm -hmm. what another couple of weeks. I, I really think she has her transition game and the discipline she has in setting things up now. Is the difference because before she didn't have any poise, like you said, it was all big. it was like a football team that only throws it 60 yards down the field, no run yep. game, no team passes. It's easy to defend now that she has a setup, she can either go highlight reel on you or she can slowly work her way 
into a game and then figure you out making subtle adjustments or subtle attacks. And that variation is what separates her because most people can either do one or the other. They're either technical or they're unorthodox. She can, she can actually is on that tightrope right between it and she can go either way. And that to me makes her very dangerous against anybody. I don't know any other fighter in her division who actually goes on that line and can go both sides. They're either unorthodox, fundamental. There's never like a blend of both of them. And that's what I think separates her. Yeah, no, I think she she's clearly a pretty special talent for that division. And uh, for Michelle Watterson, she's a really, really good fighter, a former champion. Uh, and when Invicta was pretty much the biggest thing going for that weight class. Uh, but that's a Rose Namajunas, I think, at any point is a really tough matchup for her. So let's look at another tough matchup that happened on Saturday where we had Robert Whitaker stopping um, Ronaldo Jacare Sosa in uh, on the main card of the event. And um, I'm going to give Schwann's credit. He definitely called this, called that finish. He's one of a few people. I mean, I think he's probably the only one. One I read one other person's preview that called um, a knockout. But other than that, you know, Schwann went on record last week and said that this fight was going to end via stoppage, and it did. Um a lot of people expected Jacare to be able to go in there, cause pressure, get the takedowns, and get the finish. But we didn't see anything like that. We didn't see anything close. Even when he did get a decent position on the mat, he was unable to hold it. So let's talk a little bit about that. What did you see in that middleweight fight? Um, just a second to talk about that for just a second, guys. Oh, go for uh, it. Go for it. Yeah. Um, actually, I, part of my decision, I have to thank our former guest, um, MMA coach, head, 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 head coach. Uh, Tim Bosch, Mark Marcus Davis, because before Tim fought Jacare, Tim told us he goes, if you look closely, he goes, I can't tell you the game plan, but I, I basically I figured out and I talked to him about this. I talked to him yesterday about this. Jacare's lost a step athletically. In my opinion, he's no longer as mobile or explosive as he used to be, and that used to make up for his somewhat inconsistent foot, footwork on the feet as far as his strikes and setting up his entries into takedowns. And when he fought Tim Bosch. Their essential plan was to use footwork to fight angles and pick him off at range. And Tim Bosch actually has a really good front kick. He really could have done a lot of the things Whitaker did, but instead he used the round kick. He caught, he got timed. Jacare got his leg and took him down. The only thing, the thing that maybe go for Whitaker is Whitaker's all-round striking game is a little bit more fleshed out. He's faster on the feet, and pretty much the same the same game plan Tim had, Whitaker could enact. He wasn't as strong as him, not as good a wrestler, but he's a much more layered striker and he's a much more dynamic athlete. And I thought those would be the things that make the difference because Jacare's, for the most part, he's been the better athlete than the guy he's the guys he's faced. And now he didn't have that uh, huge margin for error. He could explode from anywhere and take those guys down because they were a step slower, they weren't as strong, they didn't have as good a balance. Against Whitaker, everything had to be like textbook perfect because Whitaker had the Whitaker had the athleticism to either completely avoid him or to hit pivots and push off. And then he had the layered striking enough where he could set up, he could work everything off the jab, he could throw that left hook, he could throw that high kick. And that was what I thought the difference would be. It's just a matter of being disciplined enough to stick to the game plan and not get over anxious. When both fought him, he got over anxious because he started landing those leg kicks. He started throwing one, two, three, got taken down. The thing with Whitaker is he kept switching it up. He'd faint with the shoulder, go with the jab. He'd faint with the shoulder, go with the left hook. He'd throw that front kick. I mentioned that front kick. That front kick was eating Jacare up. And Jacare could never get into the positions he wanted to get into to get those clean takedowns, to get Whitaker flat on his back where he could go to work. And and that's what kind of tits me off. When I saw the fact that Tim Bosch was giving him problems with footwork and movement, I didn't I didn't see any way possible that Whitaker wouldn't do the same thing. 
Yeah, I think I think you hit on the major things that happened in that fight, and um, I'm yeah, like again, Connor being a friend of mine, and, and Pat Wyman, the two the two guys of, uh, over at Heavy Hands, um, both were very much on board with you, and I I very quiet I, I I could I couldn't find a reason to disagree with them at any point, and I just very quietly hoped they were wrong, and um, and they weren't and uh, it, to me my biggest thing coming out of this fight from a non-technical perspective is i'm just bummed that that basically jacare spent all this time eating high level middleweights and never got the title shot mm-hmm. um like uh, essentially just got froze out of the title shot but robert whitaker was I mean, uh, again, quoting Patrick Wyman, I think this this fight in at the time it happened shocked a lot of people. When we look back at it in three years, it's probably going to make perfect sense as we see both their careers go forward. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt bad for him. He signed, a, he re-signed with the uh, UFC, and I was like, either they, I don't think they were going to guarantee him a title shot. They're just not. With certain fighters, they don't have a lot of support for them, and I didn't know why he resigned with them. Because even if he beat Whitaker, I didn't think he was going to get a title shot, and I didn't think he was going to beat Whitaker in the first place. So now, essentially, he's on the outside looking in, and he's got he's going to have to win another four, five, six fights in a row before they even consider him for a title shot, in my opinion. So it's like it kind of it is kind of a letdown to see a guy who had been professional. So basically get um pushed to the back of the line. I mean Whitaker did a great job, but it just to me was a matchup that didn't favor him and I didn't I really didn't think he should have taken the fight, but I guess he didn't really have much of a choice if he wanted to be even even be considered for a title fight moving forward. Yeah, I think I think for Jacare to like he resigned, he's got another eight fights. We're talking about a guy who's like, you know, he's pushing forty. He started his career in two thousand three. Like I wouldn't be shocked if after this at this point, it moves past the title picture for him and just becomes like getting a little more income, like building yourself a bit of a legacy and then kind of riding off into the sunset. Yeah. And you said something interesting there because you said that um, they, they froze Jacare out of the middleweight title picture. And Michael Bisping isn't stupid. He's trying to do the same thing to Yoel Romero because now he's going on record saying that he thinks Robert Whitaker deserves the title shot before Yoel. He wants zero piece of Yoel, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I, I understand he, what he's facing going in there. I think he kind of felt the same way with Jacare as well. And unfortunately, we're seeing somebody who, like as you said, went on a hell of a run, finishing anybody that they put in front of him, and he, father time, caught up with him. I think that that's really the case of what we're seeing here. I think he's 37 years old, and father time really kind of caught up with him, and we may, be, we may have witnessed the first step in his um, downfall. Yeah, I mean, like this... This this is the first. This is the kind of loss where it, you look at it and go, "This right here is the signal of a decline." Like the decline, the physical decline has been happening, and usually for fighters, their physical decline happens. They're able to cover it for a little bit, and then they get into a fight where they can't cover it anymore. And now, Jacare could go forward and, depending on matchup, win another three fights in a row. But I don't. I think it's going to become more and more stark to people that we're not seeing the same guy we're used to seeing. Like you know, back when he was you know in Strike Force or you know at the beginning of his UFC run. 
Yeah, I probably have to agree. I, I mean, like I said, it, he he lost his step athletically, and that, and I know, I know a lot of martial arts fans like to pretend that it's all skills and experience and strategy, but just like I don't know if you watch um, regular sports like traditional sports, basketball, football, whatever. Even I always make this comparison. No matter how good a coach you have, no matter how much you can scheme everybody to a certain extent, but when you have a huge gap in athleticism, your ability to win a fight or win a game or whatever lessons because you need that athleticism in jacare like two three years ago he might have been able to just rent whitaker down force him on the ground and just outclass him but at this stage he doesn't have that horsepower anymore and that makes a big difference because on the feet he's not super precise like damian maya has really sharp footwork he can pressure you cut the cage off and get it get in on you without getting hit jacare his footwork isn't like that not to me it isn't and that, that's a big difference. He couldn't get past the striking range. He couldn't maneuver or navigate his, his way past the feints and the strikes and the counters to get into the position he needed to to get to get Whitaker down and get him down in the spots he needed to get him down and to finish. Yeah, the um, the thing about Jacare is that he always made up with raw speed and explosion for the fact that on the feet, he's, as you point out, number one, his footwork isn't very sharp. He doesn't really cut angles very well. And he also is rather just kind of plodding and flat-footed. Like, for as quick as he can be, he's not actually, like, he doesn't move very gracefully when he's actually on the feet. Um, he kind of plods around until he feels like he's in a good position, and then he explodes. Yeah, um, yeah, and this is something I've always wanted to ask you about, because... I know a lot, I've mentioned this before. A lot of people, when they see a grappler, kind of a lot of times you see grapplers kind of abandon their grappling for the striking. And the weirdest thing about it to me is they always they they always focus on the kicking and the punching, which is which is very important. But very few guys actually focus on the footwork and the setup, the little shoulder feints, how to take an angle, how to exit on an angle. Like all those things help layer your entries and your exits so that it's harder for them to counter you with a strike. If you know how to feint with your feet. You can get them to throw the strike that's going to give you the takedown. If you know how to come out at an angle, then you can get that position on the fence where you can get that trip. But a lot of guys are just, they start turning into like K1 kickboxers and just want to throw hands and feet, but they never want to do the, the meticulous work of the spit with the spacing and the stance and the positioning that's going to keep you safe and allow you those safe entries that are going to get you those takedowns. It's like, it's like they're unaware of it or they just don't get it. I, I mean, like, I think number one, those things are really difficult and take a lot of a lot of cage time, a lot of experience with striking to really build into a game. And I feel like number two, like it depends on how they're being coached, um, individual athlete wise. Like, how is their coach approaching them? Are they taking like? kickboxing classes at their gym because a lot of MMA gyms are still class-based um, as opposed to being like you spending time with an individual coach where um, if you're in just like a Muay Thai class, you're, you're not necessarily going to get a lot of instruction on those things individually. Um, and then also like you gotta, I feel like if you're, if you're learning how to strike, the, the first thing you're going to learn how to do is, is throw the strikes and then, and then the like the again, I feel like it depends on the gym if you're going to start learning those like the little savvy tricks because I've 
I don't know if it's this way for, for striking, but in other things I've done, there are like fantastic, there's fantastic details on like tiny things you can do. Um, but sometimes, sometimes they aren't necessarily always taught. They're more like assumed that you'll learn them as you progress through and as you spar and continue to learn about it, you will develop your own like tricks in that department. And it's really the high level coaches that are able to show you the, the really little things. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Uh, it's weird to me. Cause like, you know, the times I have gone through traditional training, even with more so with striking, a, a big emphasis was placed on how your stance is, or even, even if you're using the incorrect stance or you're flat footed or however you want to put it, every stance has benefits every stance has the weaknesses it's understanding the weaknesses and the strengths of that stance that allow you to maximize it you don't have to be you don't have to have i always talk about talk to patrick wyman about this there's guys who have perfect technique but they don't have any sort of strategic iq and you have guys who have strategic iq but they don't have perfect technique i'd rather have strategic iq if you can kind of figure out the strengths and weaknesses of what you're doing then you can be much more effective than somebody who just has perfect technique but has no concept of when and where and how to use it Mm-hmm. It's like I feel, I feel like maybe someone dropped the ball with Jacare. I I get on MMA coaches a lot because I I work with fighters on on the side. Like I do consulting work and scouting work, and I sometimes I'm just I'm just mystified at some of the like things that people just don't don't address at all, and they're being paid to prepare somebody for a professional fight. I mean, you can't get it all down, but even if you know the right idea or you understand what you're doing, it's much more effective than just being textbook perfect. Like if you understand the context under which you should be attacking, defending, or countering. And I, I don't know that anybody's ever done that for Jock Ray, maybe because he's such a good athlete, they never had to. So. I mean, there, there is that, that, like, sometimes sometimes the naturally talented athletes are the hardest to work with. Though, for Jock Ray, the rate at which he picked up jiu-jitsu speaks to a level of coachability that, um, that it would be surprising if it didn't cross over to other things. Fair enough. Um, just definitely, you know, we, we don't get to talk about this very often. And sorry to interrupt you, Raphael. He's a huge competitive grappling, a competitive grappling fan. And I can watch competitive, like, if I'm in a gym and I'm like taking a break from rolling, I can watch it. I can watch it all day long. I don't know that I would pay money. No offense to anybody. I admire grappling. I know how hard it is. I have friends who grapple competitively. Raphael, respect him greatly. He grapples. You grapple. I don't know that somebody could actually get me to pay money to actually actually go and attend a grappling thing if, if I didn't know somebody in it. Like, I don't know where the disconnect is. I don't know. Maybe it's just my personal bias, but it just seems like among, we have some of our biggest stars, our top level grapplers in MMA, it doesn't seem to translate or benefit the grappling competitions. Like, it doesn't seem to translate over. You could have a lot of guys going there, but you, you still don't get even half the numbers of like a popular MMA card. Like, what do you think, what do you think the reason for that is? Um, I, I think the reason for that is that grappling is just more of a niche interest than MMA and you don't really get, you don't really get casual grappling fans. You don't get like the, the numbers of people who watch MMA who don't train in a component art of MMA are are fairly high. Anyone who's gone to a bar to anyone who trains and has gone to a bar to watch a UFC pay-per-view and here's the stuff that people shout at the screen, understand that there's a pretty high density of people who don't know a damn thing about fighting who watch MMA. 
And that's not true at all for grappling. Grappling competitions are almost exclusively watched by grapplers, either because they know someone in the competition or the competition is at a high enough level that they want to see what's happening in them. And even then, the numbers of grapplers who turn in are not super high. A lot of guys will just want to watch like the highlights and see how a big name did and then like maybe see the finish to see the, you know, the final transition that happened, um, but aren't going to sit through like, Oh God, like ADCC trials West coast was this weekend and you have 64 people in a bracket for each weight class so that's all day essentially you started at noon central time and you're going till eight nine at night like yep. so people aren't i mean like i i, I know i'm not like the the I, the push to make grappling a mainstream sport it's not gonna happen <laughs> it's not gonna happen people aren't gonna watch it it's just gonna be something for the grappling community so i feel like there's a hard ceiling on the interest in it Metamorris kind of cracked it for like a short period of time because what they were doing was really different at the time. The first event, they got a ton of big names and they happened to get a bunch of great matches. And then the weaknesses of the Metamorris rule set set in as they continued to go forward with it and they lost pretty much all the MMA fans who were watching Grappling for the first time pretty much started tuning out of um out of metamoris pretty quickly is there any is there any possibility so, oh go go right here i've been talking go, so, let's, so let's talk about that thing so um there's a couple things there like what i want to say what needs to happen for that shift to occur like what needs to happen for um people to kind of beginning tuned in to competitive grappling like you see some individuals we're gonna i'm gonna ask you about the um marcelo garcia situation in a minute, but we see some individuals who are kind of taking this, putting fights in the cage, like with Chelsea Sun and promoting events, um, putting on these super fights after super fights. Do you see that helping the situation at all, or do you see it kind of hindering it? My my honest opinion, I think it's helping in baby steps. I, there was a piece about how much money um, Fight to Win has paid uh, people over time, and that is good to see. It's good to see people finally making money for their time <laughs> grappling, but I don't, I agree. I don't think it'll ever get to that point where it's a huge um, event, not even like on a glory mm -hmm. scale or something smaller than that. But what steps do you think need to happen for any type of improvement in that direction? I mean, so... Okay, so I think Fight to Win Pro is going about things the right way because they're building a grassroots program. Uh, and, and if you're not, if people like listening to this aren't aware, Fight to Win Pro is essentially using regional MMA promotion tactics to create a traveling professional jiu-jitsu uh, competition that, come, that basically packs up and goes to a new city every weekend. And they travel around the country. Um, they bring on a ton of regional guys, either purple belts and up, and they'll match them up. And then they give them a block of tickets to sell. And that's how the guys, that's how the lower end guys usually make their pay on these. Is they, to my understanding, they get a little bit of money for the match. And then most of what they do is yeah. they, they sell the tickets. And that's most of their um, pay. And then they get to have a fairly high profile match. And these are guys who are like, there are some people who do this who are 
like up and coming professional grapplers, but there are absolutely dudes on this who do it, who are like more weekend warrior types and are in the gym training all the time, but have a full-time job and just like to compete and get on there. And then they usually headline it with like a big match. For instance, in like the 29th of this month, um, so uh, Fight to Win Pro is coming to Chicago and Kyle Terra is going to be headlining the card. Uh, so uh, that that's the kind of like Kyle Terra is going against uh, Jeff Curran, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, and that's going to be, yeah, that's going to be the main event. And then the rest of it is all stacked up with local grapplers with, you know, so all their gyms are going to be coming out to support them and that sort of thing. I think that's 100% the right way to do it. It's all about involving the community. It's about like highlighting local communities and that's how you're going to get interest and consistent success. And they're killing it right now. Like fight to win pro is blowing up. I have a question though. Like it's not, that's not even an MMA thing. That's an old boxing thing. Like how did nobody else figure this out? That's what, that's all boxing promotions do. If you're an upcoming person, they put you in a place where you sell and you have a fan base, you help sell tickets. They promote you around there. They bring on other car, other fighters from that area to bring in fans, and then that's how that's how they build a name. That's how they build a brand. Like that's been around. That old pro yeah. wrestling guy. Yeah, it's 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 how classic. Do, how do they know that? How did that it's, just come up? It's classic promoters. As I, I was gonna say, I think the problem is is that like so everything else in jujitsu is either a tournament structure. Um, the IBJJF Worlds or things like that, they're not selling tickets to that. It's a tournament. Like, you show up and you compete and you try to win your bracket and you become world champion. They're not They're not inviting guys out there. They're not setting it up. The, the IBJJF doesn't really care who competes um, like in the Worlds because it's the IBJJF Worlds. Whoever wins it is world champion guys are going to come out because of that. They're not, like, trying to promote it. Uh, and then you have stuff like Metamorris and Submission Underground and all that, where they tried to start at the top. They tried to they tried to start off being the instant hit where they had all the stars and, and things like that. I, I feel like that's... It's, a, it's, like, almost too ambitious, and it's good that it happened because it showed that professional grappling could be a thing. Um, like these fight card style sort of events could work, but that it needed more refinement. EBI kind of has struck a nice middle ground where it's it's pretty community level. Like the level of grappling in it, like of the grapplers, is more akin to a fight to win pro event where it's like a bunch of regional guys um, than it is to like uh, Abu Dhabi's um sort of thing. So EBI's found like a nice middle ground, caught on really quick because it had a different rule set. Um, but I, I kind of feel like Fight to Win Pro is really going to lay the groundwork for like be how to be a successful professional jiu-jitsu organization that isn't backed by like a millionaire sheik. So all right then so let's talk about that then because you 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 did bring up a good point that Metamorphs kind of started with the top down structure where it brought in a lot of stars, it brought in the Hodger Gracies, the Mendezes, it brought in a lot of big names that everybody would know. Yeah, they ran into their problems without 
you know, not paying people. That's a huge yeah. issue. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a huge issue that saw their their downfall. Um, with fighters get, well, excuse me, with grapplers now wanting to get paid, you see them taking more steps to kind of make themselves a bigger draw. Let's talk about what went down with Marcelo Garcia, Dylan Dennis, and Manshirt. Uh, this past, uh, was last weekend, but um, for those who may not remember, um, one of the greatest uh, grapplers in the game today, or, or instructors, he's well, well, well known. I can't speak highly enough about him. He um, basically, for lack of a better term, suspended two of his top students. Mansur is the is the first individual who's gone from white belt to black belt under his um, under his guidance. And then Dylan Dennis is a multiple time champion, probably the biggest name. He definitely just signed with. Bellator and his Conor McGregor's grappling partner. So you have those two personalities. But they were banned from the um, organize, suspended from the organize, from the team because Marcelo couldn't, for lack of a better term, he couldn't get with what they were doing, how they were behaving off the mat. You know, there were s- situations with Dennis getting into it with Gary Tunin and Gordon Ryan, the bottle throwing incident before UFC 202. You know, the, the list kind of went on and on. TP, what I want to get your insight on is, is that mentality of guys being such self-promoters coming from MMA, that attitude coming from MMA and other in professional boxing, is that a bad thing? Is that really going to hinder the growth of our sport? Um, so within the community, generally speaking, um, there has not been a lot of enthusiasm for the fact that, like, yeah, that like this social media sort of trash talking thing has become a thing for grappling. Uh, I know Gordon Ryan was the first guy who was really doing it, and um, Gordon Gordon's still fairly popular, um, but there was a big pushback against him that people really didn't that, that like the grappling community on the whole for the most part didn't really like it, and. He's toned it back a little bit, um, and and what I'll say too is I don't personally know Gordon, but I have several teammates who have spent a lot of time with Gordon, uh, and have basically said that he is like if you just went off his social media presence, he's a totally different person when you actually meet him uh, versus like the kind of like you know calling people out and you know putting money on the table thing. Um, that and and essentially that I feel like Gordon's kind of toned, toned it down a little bit, or people have gotten used to the fact that that a lot of what he's doing is tongue tongue in cheek, um, and is kind of meant to be serious, but also kind of funny. Um, Dylan Danis was much more straight faced about everything he was saying, and and I know I know within the grappling community pretty much everyone I know who it wasn't a Marcelo Garcia guy was just fucking done with him a while ago in terms of like how he was presenting himself. So I think it would depend on if this sort of thing gets, um, if, if it continues to create successful grappling careers, it'll keep going. But thus far, Gordon Ryan is really the only guy who's made the whole trash talking thing in jujitsu really work. And he hasn't even gone that deep on it. So it'll be interesting to see, but I generally, 
I don't know, like, I stopped paying attention to MMA news around the time that, like, when, like, the, the Chael Sonnen was really the first guy who did it, and that was, like, kind of early in my MMA fandom. Um, not, like, super early, but, like, I was, I was aware of the sport and following it pretty consistently at that point. But then once we, like, progressed into it, I still watch pretty much every UFC event and every uh, regional events when I can, but I'm pretty much done following the Twitter crap. I like, I don't have the patience for it. I just want to see what people do in the cage. So I'm, I'm not inclined to like that sort of thing. Well, isn't, aren't you, and it's kind of relates between all the combat sports or, or all the sports in general. A lot of people who are purists in any sport will say, I want about the competition. I want to see a good game. I don't care about the other stuff. But the thing about it is, it's the same thing with MMA, boxing, football, whatever. They've already got the guy. They've already got you and Raphael paying attention. Y'all yeah. are hardcore. Y'all are invested. To get the money, you actually have to get people who don't care about it interested. And it, as much as people like hate on a Conor McGregor or a Chael Sonnen, oh no, matter, it, yeah, it makes guys are like they're necessary evils. They generate the money so that the you know the quiet, focused, mature, disciplined martial art who shuts them up. You know, Anderson Silva's career was given a huge boost as a result of fighting Chael Sonnen. And the same thing with guys who fight Mayweather. Nobody beat him, but being the counterpoint to that aggressive, cocky guy got them huge paydays. It got made them crossover stars from that point on. You know, it's like that brought in people who just don't care about this sort of thing. Well, they already have guys like you, me, and myself for combat sports, you, me, and um, Raphael, but they're trying to get the people who just casually flip the channel or might be in a bar at the time. That's who they want to get. And that's where the money comes in from. Get yeah. I, I don't disagree with that, That like, I, I totally understand the business value of having them. The issue is, is that like, so you, you talked about how you don't tune in for like grappling competitions. Have you ever watched a Gordon Ryan? Have you ever paid to watch a Gordon Ryan match? I haven't, but I will say somebody mentioned some things and they showed me some clips and I actually was kind of, just intrigued because I'd never seen a jujitsu guy talk like that. So I actually did some research on him just because of the fact that somebody's like, yeah, he's this totally different kind of guy who approaches it. It didn't quite get me to put the money down, but I actually at some point was taking an interest in him just because I'm like, well, who's this guy who's approaching it so different, so much differently than everybody else? Like, why is he doing this? And knowing how jujitsu people are, not judging, but that's not popular in their sport. So how is he getting away with this? How is somebody not coming for him or denouncing him in the public for saying and being like this. And, and like, but uh, I, at my point is that it, people aren't, people aren't paying to watch grappling just to see, like it hasn't happened yet. It may happen, but it's just that people, people get sucked into grappling for short periods of time. But if you don't grapple, you don't tend to stick around. Metamorphos died a death mostly because they like, mostly because Halleck had no idea what he was doing in terms of running that actual business and made a litany of mistakes. But the other problem was, is that they, they relied so heavily on getting MMA fans who didn't grapple to watch their product. They basically ruined their product trying to get the matchups that were going to interest the, the MMA fans who didn't grapple. They essentially ruined their product, making terrible matchups that were going to result in crappy grappling because they made on paper beforehand interesting matches that would sell ahead of time. And then once you once you show that once once they've seen two or three of those matches go south, they don't tune in the next time. And no, no not knowing a lot about the competitive grappling, 
I was I've heard this complaint with people that at the higher levels, because everybody's so good and so skilled, it's really hard to get finishes or, or have really big spots of offense. Do you ever think that's part of the reason? Like some people get turned off for high level boxing or even high level MMA because it's much more evenly matched and you don't see the mistakes and the big swings in action. Do you think that's also part of it? Because at the lower levels, you see the submissions, you see the big reversals and the huge scrambles back and forth. But as people get more seasoned and get at a higher level, they kind of neutralize each other. And well, it depends on, I think part of it depends on rule set. We're still looking for a rule set in, in jujitsu that everybody likes. And I don't know if we're ever going to find it, but there was this big push that submission only was the way to make grappling entertaining. And I think that has been proved that it makes, it definitely makes a different kind of grappling that can be entertaining, but it's not always entertaining. Sometimes it's horrifically bad because there's no incentive to attack, basically, if you're the lesser grappler. Um, if And that metamorphs, especially with their draws, with the fact that you, if you made to the end, you, you got a draw, basically every match that wasn't two guys who were super game and wanting to attack the whole time, every match deteriorated into, like, after about five, ten minutes, one guy determining... I'm not winning this. I'm shutting it down. I'm not going to get submitted. We'll go to a draw. And then I drew with this guy who's really good, and I can say I got a draw. And that's so – It's like the like going going the full 12 rounds with the world champion. Yeah. I mean, it, it was um, – that, that's – I mean, you could see it happening with, with some of the Metamorphs matches, especially as – again, they got deeper in, They especially when they paired – MMA guys with like guys who had never done grappling competitions, but were MMA guys with guy jujitsu guys. Usually you saw pretty early on, there was a skill differential. The MMA guy was too tough and technical enough not to get submitted, but he wasn't going to beat the, the jujitsu guy unless he, or and he wasn't going to get submitted unless he opened up his game and really just went for it. And then they almost all universally just shut it down and focused on not getting submitted. And so you had a lot of these like, ooh, MMA fighter tries grappling. And then you're like, ooh, I'm going to watch like people tuning in to watch Rory McDonald grapple or, you know, whoever. And then they come away going, that was crap. Why did I pay money for that? Um, and it, it, to me, it was a function of rule set um, where there's no incentive. If you're Roy McDonald and you're in there and you're going, man, this guy's attacking. Like, I can't find a submission on this guy. There's five minutes left. If I open up, I'm going to get submitted. So I'm not going to open up. There's no, there's no penalty. Like, how do you penalize a guy when you don't, when, when there's no, there's nothing in the rules that allows you to penalize someone for being inactive, then guys are going to take advantage of that. We've seen it in EBI also where um, guys have come in to EBI with the express strategy of I'm going to win in overtime. I'm going to like, I'm going to come in and my goal is to win in overtime against this guy because he's way better than me. Um, that means that for the first 10 minutes, the guy's strategy is just survive and you're going to not get very exciting grappling because of it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of just with how broad things are and the rules and how people like to, I've noticed that trend is somebody's like so-and-so grappled so-and-so in this competition, but they went to a draw or they didn't get finished because being finished could be see seen as a 
big blow against you as far as your earning potential and your schools or something of that nature, it seems harder to get that pure competition that you that you want to get that would be necessary to spark the interest. Like if guys were really going for it, I can't imagine you wouldn't get a better product. But, you know, guys, this is their livelihood. This is how they make money either through coaching, other grapplers, teaching casual people, or even working for fighters. And if you're going out there taking those chances, getting submitted, you could say you did it for the sport, but people might not might not take that. That could that could affect your bottom line. Yeah, that, that the people playing it safe. And and that said, like there's a, there's a there is absolutely room in the grappling like pantheon for submission only rule sets. I really enjoy them. They result in some really good matches sometimes, and you're going to get some stinkers. I've competed in the submission only format. I've competed in like an EBI rules format tournament. Had a blast doing it. Um, but kind of uh, like, and that was one of those, like competing in that I did that last year and kind of came away with a, like, this is really fun, but there's some big holes in this rule set that if guys aren't exploiting already, they're going to start doing it soon. And then we had, um, it, like a couple months after that, um, the Gio Martinez, Eddie Cummings match in EBI that a lot of people got upset about because, you know, the, the people complaining about that Geo just went in trying to win an, like trying to win on escape time in, uh, in overtime. And it was kind of one of those things like, yeah, but if you competed in it, you, you know that the overtime rules kind of suck, like for that rule set that like the overtime rules. Yeah. They, 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 they kind of push you to do better, but like they also reward guys who are getting their asses kicked um, in, in the, in the, uh, in the regulation time, it rewards them by giving them a good, like, all right, you, man, you were getting your ass kicked for the last five minutes of that match, but all right, we're in overtime. You get to start on his back. Now a position that you got nowhere close to in the actual match. We're just giving it to you now. Um, sort of thing. So every rule set has its problems like point competitions. Everyone trashes on them. And, and for good reasons, there's some issues with the point structures of jujitsu, but man, you want to push a guy to have to go for a sub late in a match. You're down two points. There's a minute left. You got to do something that incentivizes action in a way that submission only doesn't. Well, the, every sport, whether it's because we you see the argument, even in basketball, guys will just foul a guy to slow the game down and give him a chance to work back in the game. In MMA, guys will sit a lead and, and then dance around or take you down and control you because they know they're on top. Every combat sport has rules where you can game the system. So it's like, I mean, I don't know that there's any way that you can come up with a complete rule set because no matter what rule set you have, there will be some way to play. The, I mean, anytime you have rules, there's a way to game the system. So there's no way to really force a certain kind of fight. You can't do that in boxing. You can't do it in MMA. I don't see why anybody would think you could do it in, in grappling either. I don't see how you could. The minute you put a rule set in, somebody's going to figure out how to play to that, and that's going to get them wins 80 75% of the times, and the other people are going to catch on, and they're going to play by those rules. You might have the Mavericks, just like you have in boxing or MMA, the guys who come to fight or make it exciting. Once it starts hitting their bottom line or they start losing sponsorships or whatever it is, they're going to start playing by the rules too. I mean, I don't know how you combat that to be quite honest. Well, I, don't I, know I, I, mean, but I think I part of it, it, part of it is, is that, um, and, uh, Riley Bodycomb talks about this quite a bit in, uh, in some recent interviews he's done, 
um, the idea that essentially when we're getting into this discussion and we're talking about rule set, we're talking about game theory. And part of the issue is, is that like, if you're going to, if you're going to start trying to adjust rules, then, then you need to like, like there needs to be a deeper understanding than uh, of what a rule change will do to the, like the metagame of a sport. And that a, there needs to be a better understanding of what, what, um, what a rule change does to a sport and then a willingness to adjust the rules. If there's something going on that, that you want changed. Um, and that's part of the, like, one of the things I actually kind of like about Olympic judo is that every Olympic cycle, they adjust the rules. They, they tweak the rules a little bit. Now in recent years, the rule changes have been for the worse in my opinion, but this Olympic cycle, the, the rule set that they've released to like, to like kind of test out uh, in, I'm not sure what the testing period is, but includes allowing certain grips long, much longer than they previously had. basically opening up the grip fighting um, a lot more than they have in recent cycles, uh, making certain games more viable, like grip belt grip games and things like that. So um, like, the, just that there's this uh, uh, like assigned time period for them to play with the rules a little bit and see how it changes the game. Like the last time we had a major rule change in the IBJJF rule set was maybe the giving the where they adjusted advantages or sweep points for the teeter totter position in 50 50 because they wanted to stop the teeter totter. Like, and that was several years ago. I don't even remember how long ago that was. I, I might be totally wrong, but that's the most that's the most major rule adjustment I can remember happening uh, of note in like the since I've been in jujitsu. In the in that I should say in the IBJJF rule set, they they keep it very static. So you have these problems that kind of fester and become worse and worse, and then become ingrained into academies like the knee reaping thing where it went from just being illegal to like, if you bring your foot across the midline of my stomach, my knee will explode. Hmm. This, is, this is all interesting stuff to me. Like, like I said, I don't, I don't know enough about grappling individually. I just know within almost any combat sport, any sport at all, once you have a structure of rules and I guess if you switch it, if you regularly switch the rules and make adjustments, it makes it harder for people to kind of gain the system. But even then, you know, somebody, somebody I would think would be smart enough to make adjustments on the fly or like, these are the rules. Okay. Well, we're going to start playing to this. It makes it a little bit harder because you don't have as much time or you don't have years and years to constantly adjust and readjust like you do when the rules just stay the same. But I, I just think it'd be really hard to ever really eliminate any of that. And it, and that, like I said before, those, those kind of matches that put people at risk, those would be the kinds that drag in more fans. It might spark more of an interest and get the money up there. But once again, everybody's thinking from that individual perspective, how's this going to affect my club, my coach, my gym, my career, my, my seminars. It, and that's, that's the impression I get when I talk to people in jujitsu. I mean, like, yeah, when you're dealing with, the, when you're, again, that's part of the issue too, is starting with the top down approach is that when you're dealing with Andre Galvao, like he's already won everything worth winning. If you're starting a new promotion, it's not going to mean more to him than his ADCC championships or his IBJJF world titles. So then the question becomes, 
what's what added value does it bring to my brand to my gym and things like that and then the, then the win and loss like become really important if it's a really big stage and it's one match and it's submission only so if you lose it's andre galvao getting tapped out which we haven't seen in, in a little while so like that th that's part of the other problem that you get where like you know you start you, you start doing the fight to win pro and you build your prestige slowly and you build it as a place to you know go really express what you can do and have some fun and you know and you have a whole fight even if you have one match the hot the top of the card match doesn't go the way you want to you have a whole lower card of the match filled with you know pure action matches and stuff like that um uh that that uh that that is i think the better way to go around building it than uh the top down which we've seen consistently i, I think at this point like the only one still going is polaris and they're not exactly they haven't exactly gone around it about it the same way that like metamorris did or or submission underground which i'm yeah, i'm like I, I appreciate what they've been doing and some of the matches they've tried to do but like some of the matchmaking they do is also just terrible you still there Raphael? Yeah. I guess he's very quiet today. Yeah, yeah it, it's just it just seems like I I don't I don't have a lot of answers for it. And like I said, I, I'm one of those casuals who like if I'm witnessing it a lot, I could see myself if I was at a tournament in person, I'd probably just be really into it. But I don't I don't know I don't know that outside of that I put down money on a pay per view or go somewhere if I didn't know somebody or when I hadn't been invited to it. I wouldn't go on my own. I might go to a boxing match on my own. I go to MMA match on my own. I don't know that I go to a, a grappling match on my own. Just in the, uh, I, I, I do that. The comparison I make for, for, especially for people who like are into MMA and striking, but not really the grappling, it's like getting into watching kickboxing. There's a million rule sets and a million different promotions, and it's really hard to figure out who's it's really hard to figure out which ones are the actual ones that you want to pay attention to. Um, and really the way you get into it is that you have to be like, yeah, you have to be immersed in the community. And usually the way you find out about grapplers about like really good guys is you watch a bunch of tournaments or like your buddy who like you've been training with passes you a highlight reel of like, yeah, this is the dude I've been like, tape studying to like refine my guillotine and then they send you a video of some dude and you know then that kind of clues you into them so essentially even so essentially you don't you don't really ever think that the whole grapplers going into the mma thing is ever going to really benefit the grappling competition individually like seeing damian maya cut a swath thing the best welterweights in the world or see jacare have done it for two years straight or you know that's not gonna have a direct I mean, correlation between the results you see in at uh, grappling tournaments or grappling matches. I mean, it gets the guys like that get people to join gyms. Um, like the number of people who join a, a jujitsu gym that know who Jacare or Damian Maya are, and like, like yeah, like I watched them fight. I thought it was awesome. I wanted to try it. That's the benefit that those guys give is they don't they get people to start grappling for the most part. Um, not so much like getting 
MMA fans going like, "Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a Flow Grappling s- subscription and I'm gonna watch the IBJJF pans," like that's not happening. Um, so the I can see if Damian Meyer Jacare like pro grappling is more of a thing now than it really has ever been. It's definitely growing. There's more of an appetite for it because the jiu-jitsu community is bigger than it's ever been before. Um, if Jacare or Maya go and do a pro grappling event, I think they might get some interest. But other than that, I don't think just them fighting is getting people to be like, oh, like maybe a, a few, but like there's no really like flagship pro grappling thing out there the Eddie Bravo Invitational probably being the only one because MMA fans already have access to it on on Fight Pass, but like Jacare and Damian Maya aren't doing EBI. So, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yes. Sorry about that. I had a mic issue. Um, what are so? I don't know if you saw that. You know, Uriah Faber. I think he's doing the next um, submission underground. There's a couple other guys who are. John Jones is kind of batting around the idea. If those guys did step into Chael Sonnen's promotion, do you think that that would do a big enough splash to kind of get some attention there? Well, I mean, John Jones already did submission underground once. So he did, right. You're right. I forgot about that. I mean, like, that right there kind of answers the question. Like, it it was like, so I did the, um, I did for Flo, I did a a breakdown of the match. And my, my main complaint with submission underground is that. I don't think their matchmaking. I think their matchmaking is very much along the Metamorris lines, where it might get interest in, from people, but the interest is very good, quickly going to go away when the matches just aren't good. Um, the like bringing it, John Jones, John Jones in, in submission grappling is fairly interesting. But when they brought in like Dan Henderson. That was I, I wrote the preview for that and it was just basically was trying to say that Dan Henderson has zero chance of winning this match without just writing Dan Henderson has zero chance of writing this match and making that my whole breakdown. Because like there there was nothing like it was an interesting match on paper. And then like the Jessica I Misha Tate fight was kind of the same deal where you're coming in and you're going like one person has never really done a submission grappling tournament before. I mean, like Dan Henderson did one in the nineties and got heel hooked by Frank Shamrock in like five seconds. And then has not shown a single thing since then to make me think that he's really invested time in his submission grappling game and then goes in against John Jones and looks exactly the way you think he would look. Um, so I, I think Submission Underground has some potential to draw some eyeballs, but I don't know if they make the kind of matches that are going to get people to stick around. They have been making an effort recently uh, to put more. I think what made Metamorphs 1 so compelling was the fact that they matched really, really good guys against each other in a format where they felt really um, able to just kind of go for it. And that was what made um, Metamorphs 1 so successful. And then after that, it was trying to make the... And they made some high-profile matches, but it was like trying to make the big splash matches that look great on paper was what really uh, kind of 
brought them down in the end in terms of like aside from all the other problems they had where like people would tune in to watch uh two uh metamorphs two three four before they were having these big issues and would just come away going like well that was a waste of money yeah it, just, it seems like there's just a lot of a lot of confusing layers to it and there's just there's no one real clear clear answer i am glad we got somebody who's kind of who competes and is re regularly in that environment to give us the perspective that you know Raphael has some but i i don't often have a lot of perspective to give him so i appreciate you giving us that kind of behind the scenes and more technical side of the business and the matchmaking that we we missed out on when we we discussed this topic um i wanted to know that i wanted to switch over to uh the upcoming ufc fight night i didn't know if there were any um matchups that you were particularly interested in seeing on the uh, loba swanson card a lot of them aren't really name or division important fights but i didn't know if there were maybe some some black, some uh, dark horse fights that maybe you were aware of that you could tip us off to that we would keep an eye for, keep an eye on as far as maybe a fighter you're familiar with or a guy who, as a top end grappler coming in who might have something to offer us. Ah, uh, the that card's a little rough. Um, there's nothing on that one that really, really jumps off the page at me in terms of like, oh man, like this guy, this guy is a must watch. Uh, sort of bout. Um, there's a couple guys on here that I would consider to be like fun fights, um, but nothing like not, no, no huge up and coming killers or, you know, um, like massively awesome grapplers. I mean, we've got some pretty solid middle of the road kind of young, not youngish fighters, but like still like kind of feeling out their careers sort of fighters like Dustin Ortiz, Brandon um, uh, Moreno would be, I, I, that's a fight that I'm kind of like, I'm interested to see what happens in that one um, would be the one I guess I would highlight. Not to, not to be down. I, I feel like I'm being a huge downer on this because I'm really excited about the rise of professional grappling. I, I, I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this card when it actually happens. But like, you know, it's just one of those things that I feel like it's, you have to be, I feel like, I feel like for professional grappling, you got to be in the bubble to really, to really, really be into it. And if you want to get in the bubble, go for it. Um, and then for this card, I feel like this is just one where you're going in just, just hoping to see some guys fight. Like you're going to see some scraps in this one, but you're not going to see like, you know, necessarily the next guy taking over the world. Maybe, you know, maybe Mike Perry, if he can, you know, not have a cornerman shout something dreadfully racist. Yeah, that's a big if. Yeah, that's a big, I mean, like, it's a serious if when coming to him, when coming from uh, him and his camp. I actually have a couple questions because I, I touched on this earlier. I'm not quite sure why so many MMA fighters who have a huge grappling background, I understand you have to get the fight to the ground. But I don't understand how so many so many MMA fighters work on their grappling, but essentially throw it out the window anytime they get into a fight. It's like they just I've been working on my grappling and working on this, and it becomes clear that either a they're determined to strike, or b they've only been working on their MMA grappling, which which you discussed earlier. It's a lot of just like I always say, guys don't know how to grapple in MMA. They might train it, but all they do is train for transitions and scrambles. Once you force a guy into a position, they have no answer. You put them on their back and they can't get back up, they got nothing for you. If you can stymie them from the bottom and they can't switch positions or improve position, 
they don't know how to go through the steps just to get a submission or go through the steps to get an escape. It's all explode, 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 scramble, um, backflip, roll over, whatever they can do. It's not, it, there's no method to it. There's no structure to it. And I don't understand how so many guys have gotten away from the, the aspect of the art that really separated it from other combat sports. Uh, I think the answer is probably got a couple of levels and depends on the individual athlete, but number one, there are only so many hours in the day. And so guys limit their training down to stuff they're most likely to use successfully. So a lot of bottom grappling gets thrown out the window because you don't have the time in an MMA match to set up successful bottom techniques against other skilled grapplers. Because that's the other thing is even the guys who don't really look like great grapplers in MMA, like we need to remember that they're, they're levels above like your regular gym grapplers. Like if those people like you've, you've been in the gym with a regional level MMA fighter and like done just, you know, a guy who, who puts a fair amount of time into his skill set, you know, be it on the feet, on the ground and is not really at that world beater level, but like, you know, has some regional MMA fights and wins, you know, some pro fights and is a pro fighter uh, by trade. Those guys are fucking beasts in the gym. Like you roll with them and you're just like, wow, that guy's a different level. So you're dealing with number one, anytime you're in a, like a UFC cage, you're dealing with someone who's a very good grappler for the most part. There are some guys who have huge, massive holes in their game and get away with stuff. But generally speaking, um, very good grapplers. And then you don't spend a lot of time for an MMA match working on your guard because it's not a valuable skill in MMA because you're going to lose the round most likely because you're only going to have two minutes to set up stuff. And when you got guys at a pretty high level going against each other, it takes five, six minutes to set up a good sweep from the guard and to break someone down and to get everything going right. So I think that's issue number one. Um, issue number two is when you're working a grappling game in MMA, uh, disengagement is a huge part of it that guys can disengage from you and simply look to get back up. And now that's part of wrestling. Uh, that's a big part of American folk wrestling. But it's not really part of jujitsu. It's not really part of judo or sambo. Guys aren't getting back up in those sports for the most, again, for the most part. Um, and there are rules in place that stop you from disengaging. So it's something that a lot of grapplers who aren't coming from a American folk style wrestling background um, are used to because you get penalized for disengaging. You get penalized for stalling and for passivity. And in MMA, it's, it's good. It's good strategy to move around and not get taken down and not really like, you know, you can move around and stay on the outside and work a jab. But in Sambo, if you take two backwards, if you break two grips while backing up without counter gripping, you're considered to be stalling. So, um, so I think there's that issue is also where like, unless a guy's a wrestler and like came up competing in folk wrestling, not like, oh, this guy spent a bunch of time in the gym working on his takedowns sort of thing, but like spent time in the competing in the rule set of folk wrestling. Um, the disengagement is a big problem. So that takes time to adjust to, and it takes a lot of energy to take people down and then to hold them down in that context 
and guys don't want to spend that energy unless the unless the opportunity is perfect. And so I think you get a lot of grapplers who end up waiting for the right opportunity to present themselves because of some of these factors. Well, it, and from my point, like when I talk to fight, when I'm dealing with fighters, it's a, I look at it as like a flaw in people's training because like a lot of people say, you can't win a fight slipping, pivoting, blocking a bunch of shots. That won't win you the fight. You have to have offense on the feet. But that will contribute to you winning the fight because you're you're limiting their chances of doing damage to you while you're getting getting off your own offense. In a lot of cases, I see with certain fighters, I'll just use Holly Holm as an example. When she fought Misha Tate, she lost, and I I was telling people Misha's gonna beat her because Holly has nothing for her on the ground. She literally has nothing. Everybody told me that she works with Jackson. That's not the case, and she clearly does not have anything on the ground for her. So when Misha Tate takes her down, everybody, she ends up submitting her. And somebody goes, well, what would you have told Holly to do different? I'm like, if Holly has any sort of competency on the ground at all, take Misha down. Because Misha likes to work from the guard. And if you, and last 30 seconds, take her down, write it out for 30 seconds, and you keep your title. And somebody said, well, Misha finished her on the ground, so that would have been dumb. And I'm like, if you can't, if you can't defend it, a submission, for 30 seconds from the top position with somebody who's going to play guard and not not look for a transitional submission, then you didn't deserve to have the title anyway. Not as an insult towards her, but like that, that should be part of the aspect of your game. You should think that I might get taken down and have to work from guard, or I might have to take down a superior grappler, and I need to, to be able to control them for the end of the round, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it is. You don't have so many times in the day. The fact of the matter is, is you get higher up, certain exits, certain transitions aren't going to be there. You're going to get stuck in a position at some point. So you should spend some time trying to figure out how to get out of it. That's like me saying, well, I'm not going to learn how to punches or slip punches because I'm a knockout puncher. I'll just knock everybody out. That's great until you either can't land them or you hit the guy and you can't knock them out. Now what? You don't know how to defend. Yeah. Beaten up and all you're doing is away. I think that we, we kind of had like a real low point in submissions and, and high-level MMA for a little while. And I feel like we've kind of evened off again in terms of we're starting to see submissions happening. And I don't have the numbers for this in front of me. Um, I did do – like I remember doing a look at like um, – and submissions, again, they're not the end-all, be-all when it comes to – when it comes to grappling. Um just looking at, like, you can't look at someone's, like, go to their tapology page and run down the number of submissions they have and, like, make a judgment on what kind of grappler they are. That's not the full picture. Um, submissions are only one part of grappling. They're an important part. They're like a knockout punch. But, like, again, like, not all of boxing is landing knockout punches. There's, there's other stuff that goes into it that is important towards setting up that knockout punch. And sometimes the knockout punch never happens. All that other stuff is still is really really important and crucial aspects of the game um i i think we saw like a we're, we're now i feel like we're in a bit where there's a little bit more emphasis being put on grappling again as as people are getting better at taking the new i, I want to say we, we i hate using the term but we had like the quote-unquote neo footwork people like the yeah the um we had the guys who were um using pretty high levels of footwork and movement and uh generally had had a, created like an mma 
specific game towards avoiding takedowns by constantly being on angles. And it's, you know, it's fundamental striking and it's fundamental wrestling, but creating games where it was really hard to take them down because you never really had a clean shot at them. And I feel like we've had the, also the resurgence of the, you know, we had guys now who pressure those people down, take them down. And now we had some times where in pretty high level fights, as you said, where you're looking at someone like, man, like, once you stick someone on the ground and you find out how deep their game is, we're finding out there's some high-level MMA fighters who have really shallow grappling games that aside from like, oh, I have like two ways to get up and I explode hard into them. And once you take them away, like I've got nothing. Um, I feel like we're, we're getting to a point where that's becoming more and more easily exposed again. And we're having a little bit of a pendulum swing back towards you got to be able to have at least some semblance of a bottom game. Uh, if nothing else, just to set yourself up so you can get back up to your feet. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm saying because, you know, to me it'd be almost irresponsible. Like I said, I understand you can't learn everything perfectly, but you can have, like, fail-saves in, at least the kind of plan. When you see a guy get stuck on the ground and they, they got nothing, I'm like, did you just not train it? Did you just not think you would ever be put in this position? Like, how are you a pro fighter thinking, I'm never going to get taken down? Like, Daniel Cormier's been taken down. King Moe's been taken down. John Jones has been taken down. But for some reason, you believe that you weren't gonna be like you have to, you have to have prepared for that. Like I don't see, I don't see how you ignore that, or you think you're gonna go a whole career without being put in a bad spot that you don't want to be in. Yeah, and I think there's 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 something to the fact that you usually um, uh, the the level of energy spent on these things. Like the first time I did Sambo, I, I just got my purple belt and uh, I went to a Sambo school that was certified through the ASA. And there were a couple guys there who had been grappling for quite a while. Um, one of them is a really good friend of mine and is really, really good, has cross-trained in a lot of stuff and has won several, um, has won several American Sambo competitions, uh, and has also won several um, jiu-jitsu competitions. This guy's a really good grappler. Uh, and then there were some guys who had only been training for like a year or so there, and then like a few guys that have been doing judo for a while. And I would just, e even like, even with the stand-up, I would eat the guys who had only been training for a year because at that point I've been training like for five or six years, mat times, mat time, mm -hmm. you know. I would go against some of the guys, like the, uh, there was one guy there who was a judo brown belt and really didn't have much ground game. He had a couple pins and stuff like that. And the first time he really threw me, like we had been doing a stand-up fight. It had gone for like two minutes of grip fighting and positioning. And then he threw me with a really hard Hiragoshi. We both left the mat. He landed on top of me. I got the wind knocked out of me and was right into a pin. And I usually could take this guy pretty easily on the ground when we were doing like ground drills and all my ground experience didn't matter for anything after that throw and that pin where like I had no wind, I was pinned, I was tired and that was it. I wasn't getting out. So I think there's also that too, where you're dealing with high level athletes and stuff like that, where sometimes you get taken down into a position or a situation where like, as you kind of said, it's not just about skill the skill aspect kind of goes out the window because of other factors that came in. So with, with that in mind, you know, I, I wanted to ask you um, another question, you know, as we kind of begin to segue out, who are some names that we've been really talking about grappling for the most part right now? Who are some names that you really watch? I know um, 
I have my names, you know, I have Gordon Ryan, Leandro Lowe, and others. Who are some names that really kind of jump out to you that you enjoy watching on a week-to-week basis? Uh, so one of my favorite guys to study is Rafael Lovato. Uh, I really, really like his game. His passing game uh, really interests me, and I have a lot of aspects of his um, passing game built into my own personal game. Kind of going along on that, Bernardo Faria, his passing game is now really starting to influence me, especially with – with uh, my gym, my gym is pretty open with leg locks. Uh, we've been that way for several years at this point. Um, and some of the other guys at my gym, like they learn how to defend them, but we're really into learning them. And with the recent leg lock craze, have gotten into kind of learning them. And I found Bernardo Faria's passing is really a great way to deal with a leg locker in the sense that your legs are not very available if you get to his over-under position. Um, uh, Eddie Cummings and Gordon Ryan, I, I, I like uh, and Gary Tonin. All three of their games are fantastic. Different, sim- different yet similar. Fantastic to watch. Um, oh God, there's one more that I was gonna. Uh, Lovato. Oh, Josh Hinger, really like Hinger's game um, out of Atos. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like uh, guillotines are something that I'm building and front headlocks. I'm building more and more into my game, and Hinger's just got a wicked front headlock game. So those are the guys right now that I'm I'm really jamming to. Uh, there, there are a couple others, but those are the ones that I'm really, really kind of jamming to right now. Good stuff. Good stuff there, man. Well, um, with that in mind, CP, I definitely wanted to say, you know, thank you. I appreciate you taking your time out to talk to us today. You know, Schwan was excited to get you on the show, so we appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us both and um, appeasing our 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 hunger for um, some grappling talk on the MMA Ratings Podcast. All right. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was a good time. I greatly appreciate it, and I want to thank you especially for being the third guest in the row to compliment my knowledge on combat sports. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, did I, did I just give you guys problems by doing this? Is, is this going to be an issue now? <laughs> nah, not this time around. Not yet. But um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. If you liked our content, please be sure to like and share everything that we put out there. We appreciate your time, and we will be back for another edition of our show this coming Wednesday. Uh, next Wednesday, excuse me. Same time and same YouTube channel. Thanks, guys. Thank- okay. All right, good job, guys. That's fun. Have a good day. See ya.